0: You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant news-making issues and individuals.
1: One of the key criticisms of Iran is its continued support of the militant group Hezbollah, long considered a terrorist organization by the United States, as well as others. Its ability to sow destruction has been demonstrated time and time again in its presence, has been evidenced most recently in Syria, where it acts essentially as the proxy for Iran. Joining me to discuss the origins, influence, and the continued threat of this group is the Chief Security Officer of Stratfor, Fred Burton. Beirut Rules, the Murder of a CIA Station Chief in Hezbollah's War Against America, Is the title of Fred's book. It was published last October. He co-authored it with Samuel Kotz, who was also his co-author for Under Fire, the untold story of the attack in Benghazi. Fred comes to this field following a long and distinguished service with the United States State Department, where he served as a counterterrorism agent and later Deputy Chief of Counterterrorism. In that capacity, he was involved in a number of high-profile investigations, including the first World Trade bombing and the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in Al-Qaeda's New York City bombing plots prior to 9-11. It's great to have you back in Dallas and at the World Affairs Council. Thank you so much
0: for having me, Jim.
1: What struck me immediately in reading your book is that Hezbollah has been around for a very long time. Take us back to the beginning of the movement.
0: Well, of course, the movement gave me my job. After the first embassy bombing in 1983, the Inman Commission was stood up with Admiral Bobby Inman who put together the study that looked at the threats against the State Department globally. And after the second embassy bombing in 1984 in Beirut, they decided to greatly expand the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. And I was one of the first Inman agents that were hired. And I went directly from basic agent training into what at the time was a three-man counterterrorism branch. And the first cases I had on my desk was the 1983 and 1984 embassy bombings and then the kidnapping of Bill Buckley, the story that I wrote this book about with my co-author Sam Katz. And Hezbollah was the common denominator gem to all of these horrific terror attacks and hostage takings in the 1980s.
1: How did Iran become involved? And when did they become involved?
0: Well, we believe that Iran was involved as early as 1983. I can remember sitting around inside the different briefing rooms in the Beltway, trying to figure out the degree of Iranian control of Hezbollah, and then we had this mysterious group called the Islamic Jihad Organization that would be issuing communiques every time that they snatched a hostage, such as Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief, And we did not know the tentacles that linked Hezbollah to Islamic Jihad organization, but ultimately we were able to figure that out. So you had this puppet master, Iran, utilizing this cover name of Islamic Jihad organization that was actually just Hezbollah on a street level, on a tactical level, that was kidnapping all the Americans and Westerners and also carrying out these horrific terrorist attacks.
1: For people who are really not familiar with that time period, we're talking in your book about Buckley, but Malcolm Kerr, the president of AUB, was kidnapped and executed. There were a number of people. About how many Americans were held hostage?
0: Oh, at one point we had upwards of 20. Uh, We had Terry Anderson, the AP bureau chief. We had uh, Charlie Glass, who was an ABC News correspondent at the time of his abduction. We had Father Martin Jinko, who was a Catholic priest. That's right. The list goes on and on. But we also, Jim, had Brits, French, Korean. We actually had Russians that were also kidnapped, and the Russians kind of very- They got their
1: guy back quickly.
0: They got their diplomats back quickly because they played by Beirut rules. In essence, they kidnapped members of the hostage takers' family and threatened to send body parts back if their diplomats were not released.
1: What was their purpose?
0: In looking at this with the benefit of hindsight at the time, the purpose of Iran directing all this action was utilizing Hezbollah as a foreign policy tool, basically to drive America out of Lebanon, and they succeeded. So Hezbollah was an operational arm of Iran's foreign policy tool, and they were being used in an asymmetric kind of warfare against the United States during this time period in the early 1980s and mid-1980s, when the U.S. intelligence community had been laser fixated and focused on Russia during the Cold War. So now we have this new enemy that emerges in Beirut, and the catastrophic destruction, I mean, people today view 9-11 as a seismic change in United States foreign policy. But you go back to the 1980s, when you had the kidnapping of the CIA station chief You had horrific car bombings at the U.S. Embassy in Beirut twice, the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait, and then you had these hijackings that were taking place like TWA-847 and the bombings of aircraft. So the group was very, very functional and very, very effective for a number of years there. And quite frankly, Hezbollah today is just as powerful as they were in the 1980s.
1: Well, I want to come back to your book, but before we do that, give us a sense about how strong it is now and what is its motivation.
0: Same as before. Hezbollah today is a very effective political organization inside of Lebanon. They pretty much own Beirut. There's sections of Lebanon that they control, much like they did in the 1980s. They are a tool of foreign policy that's being utilized by Iran, in my assessment, even today.
1: Are they recognized as a political party? Yes, they sense. are. Right, So yes, they have they political are. legitimacy.
0: They, they do. That's the frightening aspect to me, because they can also operate as a state intelligence organ. And that's the one thing that I've learned in this business over time, is that when you have nation-state intelligence operations directed against enemies, such as the United States or Israel, they can be very effective. And Hezbollah is also a criminal enterprise. They're into drug running, stolen cars, human trafficking, prostitution. So th- they're almost like a criminal enterprise with legitimacy inside of Lebanon. So the
1: funding comes from Iran, but also from all these other criminal activities. It,
0: exactly, that just funds additional kind of intelligence operations against the US, against Israel, and so forth. So here's
1: a tough question. People criticize the JCPOA, the Iran deal, in part, because they say the United States should have gotten more from Iran. In, in, in short, the elimination or at least the decrease in terrorist activities from Hezbollah,
0: and to include the release of hostages host- like
1: Robert Levinson. So where do you stand?
0: I agree. I think that. Uh, so that you was think a bad the JCPOA was premature? Deal. I do very much so, and I think the bulk cash that we shipped to Iran has done nothing but help fuel the Iranian. But we say share. that was their money. Well, I don't buy that. That's done nothing but augment and support the IRGC, the intelligence uh, MOIS operations inside of Iran. That's been a windfall of cash that's just proliferated through the intelligence services of Iran so they can target Israel and target the United States and target Great Britain.
1: So what's the answer? What should the United States do or our allies?
0: Well, I think that we've been at war with Hezbollah in Iran since the 1980s. We've been involved in clandestine action tit for tat for quite some time. I think it's very easy to look at Iran's antics throughout the world when you start looking at some of their operations that they've tried to carry out in Europe. Hezbollah
1: is propping up Assad.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, we have just a few more minutes and I don't want to let you go without talking about the book. Who was William Buckley?
0: Bill Buckley was an American hero in my eyes. He's the 51st star on the, the Hall of Honor inside the CIA. I worked on his case. He was an American war hero. He served in Korea. He was one of Kennedy's first Green Berets in Vietnam. In the course of his military career, he was uh, awarded two silver stars for bravery in Korea for rushing a North Korean uh, machine gun nest as an 18-year-old young man and he volunteered to go to Lebanon to stand up the eyes and ears of the CIA after the catastrophic bombing in 1983, which devastated the CIA. How many people were killed in 1983? 17. 17 Americans were killed, uh, the bulk of which were CIA. And literally, Jim, that was a 9-11 moment inside of Washington at that time because Beirut was the center of gravity for all terrorist-related activities emanating from the Middle East. And so Hezbollah in Iran took out our eyes and ears, and Bill volunteers to go. And shortly after his arrival in Lebanon, he's kidnapped in 1984. For your listeners, think of it in concept of Ambassador Stevens and Benghazi being kidnapped and missing. When Bill Buckley, who happens to be the only CIA station chief ever to be kidnapped, went missing. You talk about a flash inside the beltway of, oh, my goodness. And I can tell you, since I hunted for the man, the sense of failure on our part. And it really
1: was a situation where you had a non-state actor, Correct. because there used to be sort of a gentleman's agreement. Countries don't kill other countries' bodies. Right.
0: We had Moscow rules, where the Russians would leave us alone, per se. We would leave them alone. But with Beirut rules, which was the title of the book, The gloves are off, and Hezbollah decided they're going to kill Americans.
1: And how long was it from the day he was kidnapped to when we learned that he had been executed?
0: About a year. I can tell you, sitting inside the debriefing center in Wiesbaden, Germany, when Father Martin Jinko, who, God rest his soul, was a wonderful man who had been kidnapped, and he told us that Bill had died in captivity, Jim, you could have sucked the air out of the room.
1: What was the impact of his death on our operations in the region?
0: Extraordinary. When Bill was kidnapped, the first thing the CIA did was st- shut down safe houses, shut down human source networks, figure out that all of their human intelligence apparatus had been compromised, therefore everybody had to go to ground. It was an extraordinary measure and, and a brilliant move on his Hezbollah's part and Iran's part to take out Bill Buckley, because literally it shut down every intelligence operation that the US had running out of Lebanon to include anything against the Russians.
1: When I got your book, at first I thought that I had a galley because there were so many redactions in it. Tell us about the approval process you went through and what are some of the general ideas or terms that were?
0: Interesting development with the book. After Under Fire, My Benghazi Story came out, I approached the CIA and said, look, I worked on Bill Buckley's case back in the day and I would like to tell his story, but I want your help. They literally bent over backwards to help. They declassified Bill's records. They gave me pictures that are in the book. Uh, They introduced me to some of Bill's old friends. You were able
1: to talk with family and friends. Yes, I
0: was able to find Bill's 80-plus-year-old sister, who was a little bit protective at first, as well as Bill's longtime companion. Once they realized that I was one of the guys with the white hats, it took 11 months for the CIA to clear. The publisher, Berkeley, wanted to keep the redactions in for transparency's sake. So the reader would know exactly what the U.S. government, predominantly the CIA, extracted out of the book. That's the reason the or Give us a sense started.
1: of what are the type of things that would be redacted.
0: For example, some of the old spooks and spies I talked to, they never had their cover rolled back. Therefore, some of their assignments in places that the CIA had never publicly admitted, they redacted. Other things they redacted for reasons that I'm not clear, for example, they redacted the type of weapon, the type of pistol that Bill had on him the day he was I noticed that, yeah. The reason for it, I suspect, I don't want to uh, theorize because I don't know, I suspect because Bill perhaps was carrying an unauthorized weapon. That's one thing that the government doesn't like to condone for folks out in the field. But if you're a
1: CIA officer, you want to carry the weapon you're comfortable with.
0: Exactly, and and Bill Buckley was an old school warrior and uh, I have a good idea what he was carrying. As a matter of fact, I know exactly what he was carrying, but the CIA chose to redact that. So uh, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to say.
1: All right, we have just another minute, and I want to ask you about the Trump administration's policy in Syria. It seems, from what I read in the last few days, that we're going to be keeping 400 troops there. Is that sufficient?
0: I don't think so. You know, we think long and hard about that at Stratfor. We write about that all the time. I think that footprint is, is not enough. Now, the one unknown variable here, Jim, is how many covert warriors will be inside of Syria, meaning how many spooks and spies will also be operating there. We're not gonna disclose that. So those numbers might be for public consumption, But my personal opinion is I doubt very seriously organizations like the CIA and DIA are just going to shut down and stop.
1: Let me give you 30 seconds to give a commercial about Stratfor, because I've been reading it now for probably six or seven years. I know a lot of our members subscribe. It's one of the first things I read in the morning. Why should everyone else read it?
0: Well, I think we try to make sense of the world in a very unbiased format. It's very difficult today with all the different biases that you read, and it's hard to cut to the chase and get to the truth. We are very rigorous when it comes to unbiased analysis in our assessment. We're not political. We typically don't write about the United States for political purposes because we know that we can only upset 50% of our readership by taking a stand at any point. So if you want unvarnished truth, I like to say that we are a pretty good source to go to. And you're based outside of the Beltway. We are, and actually people like that because there is no groupthink on our part. In fact, we have many clients, to include U.S. government clients and so forth, like the fact that we're outside of the Beltway because we don't travel in those cocktail circuits. Uh, We don't have a Washington, D.C. presence. Yes, we go back from meetings and and events and so forth. You just meet
1: with sources on 6th Street in Austin, Texas. (laughs) Fred, I want to thank you so much for joining us. The book, Beirut Rules, the Murder of a CIA Station Chief in Hezbollah's War Against America. It's an important story. You did a great job of researching the book. As many of our listeners know, my academic background is in Middle East Studies, and it was a look back at a, a lot of key events that, sadly, continue to shape the world we live in today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell your friends, share it, and give us a review that helps us make a stronger broadcast. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.